Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for joining us on Heritage Events Live. We're delighted to welcome you to the best defense strategy for America. Elbridge Colby on the strategy of denial. Please welcome our host, Tom Spohr, Director of the Center for National Defense at the Heritage Foundation. We hope you enjoy the program. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us today. I'd like to welcome you to our event, the best defense strategy for America, Elbridge Colby on the strategy of denial. Well, for what purpose should the United States be prepared to fight? And how should U.S. forces be ready to fight such wars? These fundamental questions should form the center of any U.S. defense policy, but are often, often skipped over in, for, in favor of questions like how many F-35s should we buy or how many ships should we have in the Navy's fleet? Yet, until you answer the more fundamental questions, answers to these specific questions will be elusive and of questionable value. The Biden administration is presumably hard at work writing the national security strategy and the next national defense strategy. Done correctly, these strategies will help focus the U.S. security apparatus on the most pressing threats facing the nation. The defense strategy in particular will specifically inform efforts to shape, equip, train, and posture the United States military. The 2018 national defense strategy was important as it signaled a sharp turn from the global war on terror terrorism to great power competition. And although it came out three years ago, over three years ago, the US military is still making that transition. Well, there's no shortage of voices and opinions about what should be included in America's next national defense strategy. But no voice is probably more worthy of consideration than Bridge Colby's. Bridge is the co-founder of the Marathon Initiative. He's a long, long, time think tank scholar, a former deputy assistant secretary of defense, and most significantly for the purposes of today's discussion, served as the Pentagon's lead official for the development of the 2018 National Defense Strategy. He is the author of a new book released this Tuesday titled The Strategy of Denial, America's Defense in an Age of Great Power Competition. Here's the book right here. We'll be placing information on how you can get your copy of this book at a special publisher's discount in the chat feature of this webinar. So we'll start out with me asking and bridge a few questions and then we're gonna to turn to you, the audience, for your questions. And there's a way for you to enter those questions on the webinar feature at the, at the chat box. Just go there, submit your question and we will take it here and we'd be delighted to put, put those questions to bridge. So Bridge, uh, thanks for joining us today. Th thank you, thanks Tom, it's a real pleasure and, and an honor to be able to talk about this with you. Yeah, thank you. So this book uh, could not have been easy to write. There it is, I mean, it's based on a ton of research. There's um, hundreds upon hundreds of footnotes to it. Uh, interesting to me, you use a, what you call in your introduction, a deductive approach. So you did not jump right to the conclusion and say, here's what, here's what Bridge thinks. You actually made the case, explored all the options and then came to your conclusion. So what was your motivation in the writing the book? Uh, who was your audience for it? Well, I think the motivation was basically <clears throat> the, uh, the sort of mismatch that I think you put your finger on uh, earlier in your remarks uh, between the legacy strategy that we've been pursuing, uh, which has been you know, heavily forward in multiple theaters, very high political aspirations, and the reality of the, of the geopolitical power balance, and in fact, the military balance, especially with those great power rivals that you mentioned, especially China above all. So, you know, I think we, as I try to lay out in the preface, we are in a serious mismatch. Um, and, you know, we've begun this transition. But in this period of transition, I think a strategy is really critical uh, because a strategy is especially important when you can't sort of like smother problems with resources. And I think that's kind of where we were in the last uh, 30 years. We couldn't do everything. We couldn't necessarily nation build in Afghanistan and Iraq. But most of the kind of really serious problems we, we might worry about, we could take care of with with our overabundance of power and resources. And that's just not true. There are more threats and problems in the world than there are resources we have to deal with them. And so I think for me, and this was really dr driven home to me in the Pentagon. I mean, you, you, you had a distinguished military career and one of your many uh, assignments, I believe, was, was as the head of the Army's 
uh, you know, strategy and resources division. And you know, <clears throat> the old phrase is that strategy wears a dollar sign, that it's easy to come up with pamphlets that you know, express a lot of aspirations, but what strategy really is, is connecting dollars and cents and efforts and puts and takes with a coherent framework. And that's what I wanted to lay out here. And I think, so the audience uh, is the defense establishment. I mean, uniformed military officers as well as civilians and, and the people who think about that kind of stuff, but also the broader public. Really important to me that, uh, and I, not to me, but I think it's really important that our, our military strategy, our defense strategy, has to be explicable and reasonable to the American people because the great power rivals we are potentially thinking of fighting, that could go to a nuclear war, or even if it doesn't go to a nuclear war, it could be exceptionally costly. So people need to buy into it. And, and I was acutely conscious in the book of trying to explain that. So I don't know whether I was successful or not, but I think it's, it's to a very wide audience in that respect, people who, who are interested in these issues. And I think m almost all Americans should be interested in these issues. Yeah, I love the way in the book you went through all the various options and narrowed it down to get to your conclusion. A lot of these kinds of books, people will just give you their conclusions up front and you don't know why they closed other paths. So I love that part of it. So I'm gonna to jump to a part where I have some disagreements with you. I love to Great. just run right into a conflict. <laughs> and uh, in your book, you say that in order to focus its scarce resources, the United States should not size, shape, or posture its military to deal simultaneously with any other scenario alongside a war with China over Taiwan. And that uh, raises two questions for me. One, um, you know, all federal resources, especially we speak about this at the Heritage Foundation, are constrained. So there's not a limitless supply of money. But in the past, the U.S. has spent 6% uh, of its GDP on defense, and now we're spending 3.4%. So the, the decision to spend more or less is ultimately, as you know, a political one. So do we have to assume that we're always going to have to have scarce resources that we have. We can only choose one scenario. So this is a great point. I think the spirit with which I wrote the book, and, and I hope it seems like hopefully you've, you've taken it, and, and, and I hope others, is that I try to lay out a framework. Uh, I call it a kind of a simplifying logic and that people can, can see. And I actually, I, I don't claim to be uh, uh, omniscient or, or, or necessarily the expert on all the actual decisions coming out of that. Um, even such sensitive issues I talk about as whether Taiwan is worth defending. I think people can reasonably have different views, even though I think we should. Similarly with the simultaneity issue, um, based on the factors that I've laid out in the framework, I think you could come reasonably, you could make arguments in different, um, different, different direction. As, as Bob Wark puts it, these are differences among strategists, I think is an, a good way of putting it. They're reasonable because uh, you're dealing with uncertainty and risk and so forth. So in, in the book, what I said, uh, the, the argument is, Look, there are three primary functions that we need to focus on in light of the fact that our military capability and resources as they exist or as we could reasonably expand them are not sufficient to deal with all the threats. And those are to deny China regional hegemony. And to do that, we need to deny them the ability to subordinate an ally or Taiwan in the Western Pacific. So that's the conventional forces scenario. It's to sustain a nuclear deterrent that can actually deter multiple adversaries concurrently. And that now very much includes not only Russia, but also China. And then also a lower cost way of doing the counterterrorism mission. Those are the three core missions. There might be a few other things here and there, but those are the basics. And actually what my view is, if the American people think that we should spend more on defense for the reasons that you, that you lay out, then I think the next scenario to spend on would be Russia helping Europe, European NATO defend itself against Russia. The reasons I, I, I don't, I'm not persuaded at this point is, First, I think there's a, the threat from Russia to Europe is much less than China to Asia. Russia will not be able to dominate all of, of Europe. It might be able to break apart NATO, which would be a very grave uh, uh, peril or, or uh, disaster really for us, but it would not be the same league as China taking over a uh, hegemonic position in Asia. Moreover, the Europeans are more than capable of mounting a conventional defense, more or less on their own with some American assistance. They, they outweigh Russia in GDP and latent military power. So there's a, there's a and I think they should, and, and, and uh, you know, I, hopefully we continue pushing them as, as, uh, on that front. And then finally, I think we do need to moderate our, our amount of defense spending. I mean, the paradox of military spending, I think, is you want to keep it low so that you, you know, first for the reasons that Amer private citizens should decide where to put their money, but also because if you spend too much on defense, it can have a negative impact on the economy. But on the other hand, if you spend too little, you may end up spending too much you know, later. I mean, if we'd spent more in forward deployed forces before World War II, it would have cost us less in the long run. So I think, again, I think that's a debate. My own view is, and, and certainly given 
the level of resources that are currently talked about being allocated. I mean, the Biden administration effectively called for a cut in the defense budget. We have to be laser focused on that one scenario and not not get caught up in thinking about other, other scenarios at the same time. Okay, good. Let me pull that thread just a little bit because there is a common argument that you will find in defense strategies. It's almost a, uh, I don't know how to describe it. It's a shortcut. And that is you'll say, hey, our, we intend to uh, do less in this particular region and we are going to count on our allies to do more. And so it would not surprise me to hear that uh, type of thinking in the, in the Europe area. And, but what we're finding is most of the uh, European nations in NATO are not spending the 2% of GDP on defense, despite you know, what would be historic prodding during the Trump administration. Every tool in the toolbox, you know, uh, public humiliation, you name it, uh, was, was attempted. Um, you know, you, you read about the Germans and they can't agree to even arm their drones. You know, that's just too politically difficult for them right now. So is it, is it feasible in that context? And you talk about latent military power. Is it feasible to assume that you think that Europe can or will do more? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, first off, I think let's narrow the problem a little bit. I mean, the Europeans, many of them are spending more, and some of them are reaching, for instance, the Poles, who are a frontline state, are spending well over 2%, and I applaud them for it. A number of the Scandinavian countries, including ones not in NATO, like Finland and Sweden, are spending more. The Brits, uh, despite being in, in the pandemic, uh, have increased defense spending. The French spend a good amount, and others. So if we narrow the problem, the, the heart of this problem is Germany, which is, frankly, delinquent, on its responsibilities, which is not only uh, damaging, but I think morally wrong. And I've said this to them directly. So that's one point. And, and, and there has been progress within NATO. Um, the second thing is, look, ultimately, this if, if this continues, and particularly from the Germans, this will become a game of chicken, which is to say, we will be if we are faced with the choices, the American people, with a decision of, are we going to prejudice or decrement from our ability to serve our primary geopolitical interest, which is preventing China from dominating the world's largest market area, because the Europeans are being themselves delinquent about defense spending. If they're going to force that choice upon us, we have to make the right choices, which is focusing on Asia first. And you know, if you think back to World War II, we had a Europe first strategy. We're going to make the best decision for, for our enlightened interests and, and, and so forth. And I think that, um, and the Europeans will bear the costs and the risks. Which is too bad, but that will they will they will ultimately be the ones to do that. This is why I think it's really critical that we not over reassure our allies. I mean, look, I think we can I think we can be constructive and sort of polite, but also be firm and tough. Uh, that's sort of a, a difficult balance, and I actually think how to do this burden sharing thing well is one of the great things that we need to think about more going forward. But um, but if we over reassure our allies and tell them every commitment is sacred and will always be there, we're not doing them, them or ourselves any, any service. We need to be candid. And things do move. I mean, Japan, for instance, has been, you know, it's almost been a sacred, um, you know, item of the Japanese political system that they wouldn't spend more on than 1% of defense. Now in the, in the race to succeed Prime Minister Suga, the LDP candidates are talking about even doubling it. So we can make progress. The question is whether we can make progress quickly enough. Excellent. Yeah. So I'm going to dive right kind of into the some of the core issues in this book. And in the book, you advise that the U.S. should focus on China's best military strategy versus maybe the most destructive or maybe the most likely. And there's a lot of writings in this town that, you know, you will hear people say China doesn't want war. China will never go to war. They prefer to achieve their their means through, you know, much less kinetic. And so we should the United States should focus its efforts on gray zone warfare. That That's a huge cottage industry in this in this town but um but you don't agree with that in this book and you, and why why should the u.s focus on china's best military strategy and what do you think that best military strategy is for them great well i mean i would say um fundamentally to, to put the case positively the reason is because the best military strategy is the one that's most gainful for them so the most destructive military strategy for instance they could launch a nuclear attack on them but that would be insane because we would do the same to them so it doesn't really make sense. And that's a real issue because if we spend all our money on national and missile defenses, we'll lose in the primary theater. So we got to get to the right level where we deter them, but we got to go after the, and similarly, this, the likelihood thing, there's almost an arrogance in that. There's a sort of a hubris, right? Because it presumes that the Chinese would never think they could beat the Americans, right? If they think they can beat us, why wouldn't they either precipitate a conflict or start one or just threaten one and everybody know how to resolve? I mean, people who say that the Chinese wouldn't, 
start a war to me or wouldn't risk a major war remind me of the people who said before 2008 there could never be another depression. That it's actually the very statement and the thinking along those lines that makes it more likely because that, that will lead us to be unprepared for a high-end military conflict. And the critical point here is that a high-end military conflict, the direct application of military force, it sounds old-fashioned, but there's no better way to coerce somebody than to hold a gun to their head. You know, all this gray zone stuff is like, by definition, is not that dangerous, right? I mean, take Taiwan. The people on Taiwan, they don't want to be part of, this, of the PRC. They don't want to be run by Xi Jinping and his, his you know, police, security police apparatus, Red Guard, you know, uh, descendants, you know, uh, metaphorically. So China is not going to be able to calm them into giving up. If China is really serious about it, which I think they are, then they're going to be thinking about the direct use of military force. And that is China's best military strategy. Yeah, I think China's best military strategy. So it's best overall strategy. If it wants to become dominant in Asia, yeah. it's what I call the focused and sequential strategy, which is basically picking off uh, parts of this coalition that's going to try to balance, you know, think not only the U.S., but Japan, India, South Korea, hopefully Australia, uh, Taiwan. China's going to pick off those parts, uh, uh, the weaker and more vulnerable parts of that coalition, so that the rest of the coalition gets the idea that this coalition is just a, a hollow shell, and then it's going to collapse, and China will be dominant. Because China doesn't, the truth in what, what you were saying earlier, alluding to, is China doesn't want to start a huge war a la World War II. No, it wants to do what Bismarck did in the 19th century in unif unification in Germany. Bismarck took Prussia from one state among many in, in Europe in the space of about 10 years to a war with Denmark, Austria, and France radically changed the geopolitical map of Europe. In, in some ways, we still live with it. Uh, and, and that's what China, I think, its, its best strategy would be. Its best military strategy in that context, if you're thinking, all right, how do we take down these vulnerable parts of that coalition, is the fait accompli, which is, they, again, they don't want to start a huge war uh, they want a, a small focused war where they create a new set of facts on the ground. And then we and, and, and the rest of our partners and allies basically decide that we're going to live with it. You know, a, a, a grander version of what the Russians did in Crimea. And the problem is, it's a really good strategy. And it's very possible that, that we and others might decide to live with it. Yeah. So there's more to fear than just a Facebook post, it sounds like. And, <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah. So uh, in, your book, in your book, you talk a lot about allies. And I really like that discussion, you know, because it was a lot more granular than we normally get about. Normally, the argument for allies are, you know, somebody pulls out a Winston Churchill quote, which are very handy. You know, I forget what the, he said about allies, yeah. you know, or, but, yeah, you know, exactly. but anyhow. Yeah. Um, but so m many people say, hey, the more allies you have, the better. End of discussion. But you, however, advise a more nuanced approach talking about, especially in the Western Pacific, about how some alliances could uh, carry along with them entanglements, uh, potential costs of could you kind of give us a little bit more of your thinking on how you think about alliances, especially in that neck of the woods? Sure. No, thanks. And I, I, I share your view. I mean, I look at I look at alliances the way I look at, at everything in this perspective. I think people like you and I, we I look at my job as kind of trying to work for the American people. I mean, I don't I don't collect a federal paycheck, but I mean, this should make sense. You know, the strategy here should make sense for the American people in an, in an enlightened way that, that can, you know, kind of be positive some with others. Uh, but basically in their interests. And that's why, you know, there's a tendency, especially in the Beltway, to talk about alliances as if they're like marriages or some kind of religious pact or whatever. And that, to me, they're more like business, maybe maybe a little bit more, but like more like a, a long-term business partnership. It should make sense for both sides. Sometimes it may, may need to be equitable, sometimes not, but it should always be in our interests. And people kind of hand wave about how our allies are so great. And our allies have gotten a great deal, many of them, for a long time. And we were willing to go along with that because we had other things that we were interested in. But it's not going to work anymore. The only way we're going to be able to balance China and address the other challenges and threats in the world is if we all lean in, uh, in, in the way that we're best suited for doing. And I think the, the, the issue of allies is critical in the Pacific in particular because, as you said, the paradox is that you know, we need an, an anti-hegemonic coalition that's strong enough to stand up to China. But if we bring in too many countries, we risk getting entangled in a war that, that's not going to go well. And I mean, many people watching, I had family involved in Vietnam. I mean, it was a tragedy for us. And, and in the end of the day, uh, I think, you know, it's fair to say that it was not worth the cost. You know, I mean, with all due respect for those who served there, um, if we'd been able to draw that defense perimeter maybe in a different way, maybe we would have spared that and still won the Cold War. And that's so in a sense, Vietnam kind of hovers over my my thinking in this book, because we need to be tough and we need to be 
assertive and, and help others protect themselves, but not go too far where we, and that's both a kind of a moral commitment to the American people's interests, but it's also strategic because after Vietnam, we almost pulled out of Europe entirely. You know, the whole thing could have fallen apart. So I think that's really critical. And I, what, what I basically say is our defense perimeter, which is to say the, the states that we're really committed to, basically it should trace along the first island chain, basically in the, and with all due respect to a uh, distinguished army, retired general, general officer, I think our strong suit is aerospace maritime warfare. And, and that's, uh, you know, that's our, that's our wheelhouse. And if, if, you know, countries like Japan, Taiwan, Philippines, Australia, maybe in the future, the Indonesias of the world, where China has to use maritime forces and air forces to get there and project and sustain military power. There, I think we can do a good job, especially when we work with them. The Japanese have a, quite a good Navy and Air Force as well. So that's sort of how I think, but that's going to be dependent. That's going to be dependent on, on how much other countries are willing to do. I mean, if, you know, if Japan's not willing to step up, we may need more others to, t to carry us along, which is going to be more dangerous. We may have to work with Vietnam. But then what happens if China threatens Vietnam? So, so the, the idea then to, put a fine, to kind of put a finer point on it is if we can develop a military strategy that can allow us to defend those countries forward, we won't have to do crazier things later that are going to be more costly and risky. Excellent. So um, one of the central themes in your book, and you talk about it to the point where you must have even gotten tired of writing it, is about the anti-hegemonic <laughs> coalition. And you suggest that it is perhaps the key to defeating a Chinese attack. Can you talk about the dynamics and how we manage such an anti-hegemonic coalition? It, yeah, it's, it's basically the idea that China's too strong yeah. for us to balance alone or anybody individually in Asia. I mean, China's about half of the total power of Asia if you use kind of conventional metrics like uh, economic size and that kind of thing. So standing alone, you know, let's say Japan stands up to China, China will beat them around, right? And we're too far. And so our interests are attenuated in our ability to project power. So we need other, we need countries to work together. The question is, what does that look like? I actually don't have a fixed view of, of what exactly this is going to look like. To be clear, I don't think we necessarily need an Asian NATO. Um, in fact, an Asian NATO may be counterproductive because it may involve too much commitment. So this is something looser than I'm talking about, this anti-hegemonic coalition. So a country like India, actually, our relationship right now is probably pretty good. That we're able to do more and more and more. But actually, India pulls a lot of its own weight. It's not interested in just being a, tri you know, a tributary of the United States. Okay, great. In fact, my view is we should kind of like outsource South Asia to the Indians and sort of empower them. And that's kind of, but there are going to be other places where we're going to have to have more formal relationships and particularly alliances. I think of alliances, which are like formal commitments as kind of the steel in the spine of that coalition. That's like Japan, uh, effectively Taiwan, in my view, South Korea, Philippines, Australia. That's that front line, because if the Chinese are going to get out, they're going to push out through those maritime approaches. And if we can hold them there, you know, speaking of Churchill, one of my favorite quotes is uh, he said during, I think, World War I or just before, I think, he said, um, uh, if, we, if we win the decisive battle in the primary theater, we'll, we can set everything else right again after. You know, if we can hold China at the first island chain or thereabouts, we can deal with Africa, South America, South Asia. We'll get around to it because we'll be in an advantageous position. But if, we're, if we lose in the first island chain, we'll just fall farther back and be weaker, and then we're going to be imperiled everywhere else, too. Excellent. Yeah, so I would remind our audience to submit your questions. We are taking questions, and uh, we'll get to those in just a moment here. And I would also, I'm going to plug the book again, Strategy of Denial. Information on how to get your copy is uh, in a handout on the webinar tab. Um, this anti-hegemonic coalition, how would China... How would they think about taking that apart like a can opener? Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, I think of it sort of like short-circuiting mm -hmm. is kind of what the, it, the focused and sequential strategy is basically you don't want to catalyze the whole coalition to fight you. So the, the, the mistake the Germans and the Japanese made actually uh, in World War II was to basically get everyone to fight them. That's not what you want to do. You want to you have a series of short, sharp wars which convince everybody else that this coalition is full of it, you know, basically not going to work for you. And particularly because... If, if China, say, goes after Taiwan and then maybe goes after the Philippines, people are going to get the message. So I think credibility is important in a particular way. I don't think it's going to be – I think we can get – can deal with uh, the ramifications of the kind of catastrophically handled withdrawal from Afghanistan. I think we can deal with it because people can tell the difference between Afghanistan's fate and, say, you know, Taiwan. If you're in Japan, though, Taiwan is a neighbor. 
you know, it's, I mean, I think it's within eyesight. I think you can see the Senkakus from Taiwan, vice versa. So, I mean, these, this is a much different thing. And if the Americans basically say, well, we can't do well enough to help Taiwan because it, there's, the Chinese are just too strong. Well, I mean, how does that apply to Japan and Philippines? So that's what China wants is to kind of like, instead of fighting everybody, basically take down a few of these guys. And then the message goes around, look, sometime you're going to be put under, the, under that hot microscope and it's going to go poorly for you. The Americans are going to talk a good game, but they're going to let you go. And so it's better to cut a deal. That, that's the thing is it's better to cut a deal with the Chinese. And that's a very real possibility. Lee Kuan Yew had a very cutting remark about the ties, uh, you know, fairly or not. But he said they, they bend before the wind blows. And it, but it's an expression that applies to almost, you know, pretty much every country, which is they'll see where the wind is going. And if they think they're going to be left out to dry, they'll, they'll cut a deal. So um, as the United States puts its strategies together to, to, to deter that kind of attack, uh, you know, deterrence theory, of which I am not a scholar, kind of divides itself into these two thoughts about deterrence by punishment, imply, uh, applying as more punishment than an adversary can withstand to get them to deter, and then deterrence by denial, denying an objective, uh, the objectives of the enemy. And your book, especially with its title, The Strategy of Denial, seems to come down fairly strongly in favor of a strategy of denial. Can you talk about that? Right. Denial is better if you can get away, get, 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 um, get away with it or you can make it work because uh, denial basically takes the weapon out of the, out of your other, of the other side's hands or, or essentially negates its power, right? And then the, the deterrent effect is because, well, you may have a bow and arrow, but I've got a perfect shield, then you're never going to get through, so you're never going to really... Uh, think it's worth doing. And, um, and of course, these aren't mutually exclusive. And in fact, in the book, I, I do weave punishment at the highest levels uh, for reasons that I'll get into. But denial is much better. And it's particularly important when you don't have an advantage in resolve. So the problem that we face is that we're fighting 10,000 miles over there, but Taiwan, China thinks is part of its own country. South Korea is 100 miles from the Chinese coast. Philippines, 100 miles from Taiwan. Vietnam is a neighbor, et cetera. I mean, in a vacuum, Chinese probably are going to care more than we are. I mean, who knows? And that's something I talk about. That that's actually, we can actually manipulate that, and we should, so that we do end up caring more. Uh, but and I, the word manipulate is not right. We should actually plan in a way that makes it uh, uh, makes it more in our favor. Um, but the but given how far we're talking about, and most Americans have never been to Taiwan, don't know, probably don't know anybody from Taiwan. A strategy of denial is better because it asks less of us in terms of our suffering and our sacrifices, hopefully, because denial is about, you know, taking that sword out of the other guy's hands. Punishment strategies, usually they don't work as well because people, you know, often will resist giving up something they really care about, even under pressure. Um, but also because if you in inflict punishment on somebody, that's one thing if the other guy doesn't have the ability to inflict punishment back on you. But China does in a big way. Sure, they could impose sanctions, they could turn off TikTok, but they can also launch conventional missile strikes on the, on the homeland, and they could launch nuclear strikes on the homeland. And in fact, you know, as we've learned from Admiral Richard and General Hyden, they're dramatically expanding their nuclear forces and probably accelerating it from what, well, maybe accelerating it from what we can tell. So if we start punishing them, well, what are they going to do? They're going to punish us back. How does that end? Not, I think, unlikely to be in our favor. So I think the best strategy is we use denial to block the invasion if we can. So because China's best strategy is going to invade Taiwan and take it over and create a new, new, rea new reality and then rinse and repeat for the Philippines until the coalition falls apart. So if we can block them from seizing and holding the key territory of one of our, of our allies, we deny the fait accompli. Then China has a decision. It can say, well, I'll give up, live to fight another day, lick my wounds, what have you. Or I can try to escalate this. You know, they've lost in the immediate battle. And they can do that. They could blow up some tankers in the Middle East, but that's probably not going to matter for us that much. We might be able to stop them. Or they could say, launch nuclear strikes in America. But then we're really going to be angry. And we can impose costs back on them. But in that context, they will be the ones who are bearing what I think of as the burden of escalation. They're, basically, they're going to seem like the aggressor and the bad guy. And every, we're going to be, you know, FDR talked about the... Uh, uh, a righteous might, you know, or Clausewitz talked about the flashing sword of anger, you know, of uh, uh, vengeance, I should say. And that, so that, 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 that's, that's not going to end well for them either. And so that's, that kind of mixture is, I think, the right, but emphasizing denial is, is the right strategy for us and the right strategy for the American people and for what fundamentally our interests in Asia are really, really important.
but they're not existential truly. And so we can't have a strategy that relies on existential risks, you know, without thinking about how we would get there. Uh, we're going to go to the audience questions next. I want to hit you with one more because I want to make sure we talk about it. And that is your thoughts on a binding strategy within this anti-hegemonic coalition. No, thank you. This is, I think, one of the hopefully uh, more, more novel aspects in the book. Um, so the binding strategy is basically the idea, okay, what do we do if we can't make a kind of focused denial work? So the ideal here is if we could say sink the Chinese fleet, uh, shoot down the air armada and you know, kill, wound, kill or capture the forces or, or eject the forces that land on Taiwan before they can seize and hold and do it in a way that's relatively limited so that China is bearing the burden of escalation. Okay, that's the ideal and we should focus up. That's why I'm so laser focused on it because it's a high standard. What if we can't do that? What could be because we are neglecting because our allies don't step up enough like the Taiwan's and the Japanese. Could also be because the Chinese are just gonna be too strong. I mean, that's a reality, even if we make a good effort. So in that case, what happens if they're so strong that we either have to wage a much larger war in order to defend say Taiwan or the Philippines or we may even have to recapture them, a la World War II in the Pacific, which would be the worst outcome. But, but in that case, the, the big question is going to be, are we going to have the willpower to do it? And that's not obvious because of the points I was just saying about our interests being important but not existential. So in that sense, what I was alluding to earlier, we have to figure out a way where our, our resolve will be catalyzed, where we will see it as worth our, 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 our effort and risk to do it. And also that our allies and others will see that. And so um, basically what we should be doing is we should, uh, our strategy should deliberately be postured in a way, our forces and our, and our way of operating should be postured in a way that if China wants to apply this best military strategy, this focused and sequential strategy using the Fed accompli, they will actually have to basically tick off uh, everybody else and make us all angrier so that we will be willing to do the things that we need to do to beat them. The, the concrete example I use of this, in December 1941, say December 6, 1941, I don't know the polling data, but I think the vast majority of Americans were completely uninterested in engaging in a war with Japan. And not only were they in, not interested in a war with Japan, they definitely weren't interested in a war with Japan like what happened. Two months later, after Pearl Harbor, Hong Kong, Bataan, Corregidor, Malaya, Singapore, the American people were, you know, FDR's point about their righteous might. We were angry, we were engaged. So we actually wanna put the Chinese in a position where in order to even try to salami slice, they will have to start a larger war. And that, that, that means spreading our force out, working with more allies and partners. This is where this Australia move is positive. We're more with the Japanese, these kinds of things. Our posture is less brittle, less of a glass jaw. They're gonna to have to hit us harder. And I think if, if the Chinese see that, see that it, even though they just want maybe to try to salami slice against Taiwan, but they can't keep the war small, then they'll be deterred. I actually think, and, and I think you served this time, but uh, you know, as obviously as a junior officer, but in the later part of the Cold War, I think this is what it was really about. I think even well, in, and, and hopefully we can do better than this, but well into the later part of the Cold War, we still thought we would lose a conventional war in Europe, given the size and sophistication of the, of the bloc, Soviet bloc forces. But I think our force was strong and resilient and capable and credible enough that if the Soviets had invaded, they knew they were going to start a war and that we were all going to be willing to go the distance. And that would ultimately go up to the nuclear level. And in the end, it was enough. And I think that's what we should aspire towards at the minimum. Almost reminds me of the NATO battalions, uh, strike groups we have in the Baltics right now in Poland, you know, that, that by, if you look at their size, they're almost meaningless, yeah. a thousand people apiece, but every NATO nation has a contribution there. But you got it. The one thing is it's got to be more. I think the problem I have with those is that they are kind of a tripwire. I think you've got because, they, you know, I mean, in a sense, the Russians could probably just ignore them. Right. I think what it's got to be enough and resilient and capable and more like Reforger and the forces along the inner border. These are forces they're going to really have to fight through. They're going to have to deep strike. They're going to have to blow up a lot of things. That's because then it's more like, you know, they can't just ignore them like a symbol because the problem with the tripwire is it presumes the thing which is at issue, which is our resolve. Yeah. And we need to activate our resolve. The other example I like to use, by the way, historically is uh, Lincoln. I mean, I'm sure, I think the army actually did suggest that uh, the, they, they withdraw the troops from Fort Sumter. Yes. Um, but Lincoln, I think, uh, adroitly understood that, uh, or, or uh, uh, sort of intelligently uh, understood that keeping him there and then ultimately the South fired first, 75,000 volunteers for the federal army. 
All right, we're going to go to audience questions, and uh, Mr. Dakota Wood is going to ask us what uh, what we've got. Absolutely. Thanks, uh, Tom Bridge. Um, I actually think the quote was, the only thing worse than going to war with allies is going to war without them. So um, anyhow, so we have literally so many come in, I'm going to have to group some things. I'd rather, I'd like to call out names, and I just can't do that. Um, but on Taiwan, um, what are the odds of China actually doing this and what time frame? So that was one of the very first questions and it's more of a numbers thing. But rolling into the larger Taiwan, another one seems, uh, it says, uh, the, the questioner sees, it seems to be a near holy obsession or a religious thing, you know, on the part of Beijing to take Taiwan. So with that kind of commitment, uh, keeping in mind time frames and those sorts of things, uh, can the West outlast uh, that business. Uh, and then another questioner said, isn't China just bluffing? They have colleagues in Taiwan they talk to and the Taiwanese think all this is just a bunch of bluster. So kind of grouping that together, you know, likelihood, time frame, is it a bluff? Can we outlast this uh, objective? Well, I think I can actually answer them all in a way together, which is I think the Chinese do really, really want to unify with Taiwan and they're pre prepared to do for so forcibly. But whether they actually do so is going to depend upon the costs and risks of doing so. So obviously there's a big benefit, but what are the costs and the risks? If the Chinese know they're going to fail, I mean, Mao Zedong was obsessed about unifying with Taiwan, but he knew he could, didn't have a, a hope of getting past the Seventh Fleet. So he never tried, and he avoided a, uh, an issue after the 1950s over it, and same with Deng Xiaoping, who I'm, uh, you know, I think in certain ways calculus was the same. So it's the calculus that's critical, critical and that's what we need to affect. The problem is that the Chinese have been laser focused on this for 25 years and they got a lot of money to put on it. And they're, you know, what I like to say is China is a long-term problem in the way that heart disease is a long-term problem. If you don't take care of it in the near term, you'll never get the long-term. So it's both a near-term lethal problem and a long-term problem. And uh, the issue is that, that they, their military modernization program is already coming into the force, like already, already and right now and this decade. Meantime, we've been slow to move. I mean, Tom mentioned nicely, kindly the 2018 National Defense Strategy. I think the third offset was the kind of precursor that started the focus. You know, NDS built on that. But it's going, frankly, too slowly for my, for my taste. Not for my taste, for the situation. And, and I think the FY22 budget request is also, uh, you know, a, it seemed too long-term focused. Uh, not, the long-term is a problem, but so is the short-term. And, and so this, this combination of factors makes me think that, um, uh, the Chinese leadership uh, may do something uh, before 2027, which is what Admiral Davidson, the former commander of Indo-PACOM, said. Uh, maybe not tomorrow or next year, but sometime in the 2020s, they're going to say, well, we're looking good. Um, you know, who knows what the future holds, you know, economically and so forth with China. The Americans are finally getting their acts together, but their forces aren't going to be ready really until 2030 or after. Ditto for Taiwan and Japan, which have lagged but are, are, are behind. You know, if you look at the, if you look at why the Germans went to war in 1914, and you look at why the Germans went to war in 1939, the Japanese too, it, it was often for this kind of window of opportunity perception. So I think this is why it's really critical that we be focused very much on the near term as well as the long term, and try to patch together a sufficient deterrent that speaks to that calculus, <clears throat> that says you are going to fail because the good thing that we have going is a, it's an island. You know, people don't want to live under the, the Chinese. They have to get over basically 100 miles across water, which is tough to sustain an operation. The Germans couldn't get across 26 miles, uh, I think is, is the English Channel. And the second is, if the Chinese fail after they've tried to invade, that is catastrophic. So, you know, that may, they may string up the, the CCP leadership on the one hand, but also the region's going to say these guys are really dangerous because they're willing to use force, but they're resistible. And that's kind of the worst outcome for a country like China is if people think you're bad and dangerous, but also you're safely resisted, then you're, so that means their, their probability level has probably got to be pretty high. So we, we should, you know, we shouldn't take solace from that, but we, we, we can do this, I, I think. The jump, we got a lot coming in here. So I'm gonna try to group together four and hopefully the grouping <laughs> okay. makes sense. Uh, one, uh, in the South China Sea, wasn't it the case that China had a fait accompli during the Obama administration with the island building and all that? Kind of related to that is almost this lawfare sort of thing. So in you know international arbitration disputes and whatnot, the Philippines actually won a case against China about you know intrusions, and and yet China didn't care. They went off and did what they wanted to do anyway, right? Which would 
kind of imply that they can do these things to achieve their objectives in this gray zone kind of you know business without really going all on military. Related to that then is, are you focusing too narrowly on China in this military approach? And if it's not a power projection thing like we've done in the past, then there are implications to the US military. So are we gonna shift from active duty, large standing to more of a guard reserve sort of thing, right? So it's, it's is it really about war? Are you too focused militarily speaking on China? And aren't there implications to that? And then linked to it is uh, Robert Gates famously said, we've never gotten our you know, forecasting or our predictions right ever. And so are we, are we going down? I mean, this is what the questioners are looking at, going down a path where making too many promises and you might have strategic consequences. Uh, no, there's a lot there. Let me try to, maybe I'll go in reverse order. I mean, with all due respect to Secretary Gates, I was I had the honor of being uh, in, a, in a fellowship named after him uh, for a number of years, a big admirer of his, but I think he's wrong about that. I mean, we have been right in our forecasts. And the thing is, forecasts are contextual and they're, they're dependent. It's like the market. We were right about the Soviets being a threat. We prepared for it and never came to be. So we weren't wrong in our forecast. We were accurately, or accuracy is not the right term. We were putting down insurance against a potential future, which did not come to come to pass, whether because, you know, we'll never be able to tell definitively. But I certainly think we weren't over preparing in the Cold War as a general principle. I mean, and the other thing is the Soviets spent a lot of money on the military, right? Likewise, am I overemphasizing? I think the question is kind of, am I overemphasizing the military over the gray zone? Well, the gray zone works very well. For instance, like the Chinese basically took these disputed features. I mean, these are literally like things that come above the water a tiny bit. And then they put huge dredgers in there and created new islands. So, I mean, it's almost like it's not, they, they didn't seize anybody's territory. I mean, in, in the kind of intuitive sense, like they didn't take something where it was a populated area as part of an established country. They, they're really operating on the very, almost beyond the edge of what essentially what is a country. And it's, uh, it's difficult to project power for a country like the Philippines into the waters of the South China Sea. So look, the gray zone can matter in these kind of marginal or sort of ungoverned spaces, basically. Um, but you know, the Chinese aren't going to be able to sort of like gray zone their way into seizing the island of Luzon and you know coercing the Philippine government into you know acceding to their will. Um, the the reason that I focus so much on the military is not because I think that mili the military is in uh, or sort of war and peace are the most valuable part of human affairs. I mean, to the contrary, I mean, as I end up, you know, what we want here is a decent peace. Uh, but if you don't get, it's a little bit like the police, you know, if you have a, a neighborhood that doesn't have law and order and it has crime, forget about commercial development, forget about schools, forget about, people are gonna leave the neighborhood because they're not gonna wanna be there. So first you gotta take care of the police. Then once you get to that position, you don't really think about the police that much. It's kind of on autopilot, right? I mean. If you lived in New York in the 19, late 1980s, early 1990s, you were only thinking about crime. Under Giuliani and, and, and Bloomberg and stuff, the crime was down. It wasn't a big deal. Who thought about the police, right? Similarly, if you don't get the military balance right and your deterrence right, China's going to have an incentive. And this is particularly because of, actually, paradoxically, because the gray zone doesn't work and because economic sanctions don't work. Look at the Australians right now. The Chinese are blasting them with economic sanctions, and the Australians are basically saying, stuff it. Right, which is you know, g'day, you know, and and kudos to our to our mates down under, but that that's good, but it's also paradoxically increases the allure of the military instrument for China, and so that's that's why we got to be, and it gets back to that. What's the relative? If we can get it so the Chinese don't see an advantage in in using military force like the Soviets didn't in, never did in Europe, then we can shift the competition. One thing I worry about with this administration is they have this tendency to say or imply that this is gonna be a political, economic, technological competition with China. It's like, well, the, gate, the gateway to that is making sure the military balance is adequate. And I'm not, I'm not convinced they're paying enough attention there. As, as my colleague and good friend, Matt, Matt Pottinger puts it, we're gonna to have to have a sprint to get in the marathon. That's the kind of the way we think about it. And then I think the last point on the future force structure, I actually, I, I try to make a virtue of my ignorance about the specifics of reserve, active guard, these kinds of things, <laughs> which are very important. Uh, by concentrating in the way that I think, Tom, you were suggesting at the framework level and not, you know, I don't pretend to have all the answers by any stretch. But I think here, 
uh, over-focusing, we're better off over-focusing because actually we're not over-focusing, uh, A. And B, look, we just, you can see China is by far the most powerful country in the world. You know, I mean, okay, what, if Venezuela gets really frisky or Cuba gets really frisky, A, there's not much they can do. And B, we always have forces that we can use in the active force or call up from the Guard and the Reserve to handle these, you know, because they're not going to develop a death ray or something, right? So we got to make realistic assessments and investments based on, on where the danger is most acute. And it's very clearly most acute uh, uh, from China and Asia. So we, we're going to have time for one more, but it, it can't be like a, a coalition of 10 questions. <laughs> That's right. But let me, let me just say this. I really appreciate in your book that the last or second to last chapter was not Here's Bridge Colby's recipe for deterring China. That's, you know, we need stealthy drones flown, flown up aircraft carriers and we need, you know, a more acoustically superior submarines. I love that you kind of pulled back from that and just showed us the framework. But Dakota, for your. Yeah, the last grouping then has nothing to do with these coalition things. Right? Okay. You know, whether it's anti hegemonic, whether it's a binding strategy, if you're picking key allies, you know, are you in the group or out of the group? And it really comes back to this, are you assuring allies or over-assuring and you know, making too many promises? And related to that, you know, we've had the Quad. We now have this new trilateral agreement between the UK, the US, and Australia with the nuclear submarines. So if you could kind of go back to this approach to picking and choosing allies, and if somebody is not in the club, does that present you know, a problem? Uh, or if you're in the club, you must be really, really important. And so you are you over promising and over committing and uh, that, that would probably yeah. uh, spend the rest of our time. No, it's it's a great question. It's one I really thought it was one of the harder aspects to think about was this um, this differentiation between this anti hegemonic coalition, which is kind of vague and a little bit shifting. Like, I think Vietnam's basically part of the anti-hegemonic coalition, but I don't know if they agree, <laughs> you know? But it's sort of like, are they behaving in a way where China effectively has to reckon them as standing up to them? And, and in one way or another, working with others to do so. Meanwhile, there's alliances, which is like, we put our credibility on the, ground, on, on the line to defend this country. Obviously, Japan, South Korea. But in effect, I, I would say Taiwan is like two-thirds or three-quarters of that. So I call it a quasi-ally, basically. I, um, Look, I think, again, the point is always to think back, are we achieving the goal, which is balancing China? And that's basically, are we strong enough together that if they did want to go for, at the end of the day to a big war, we would be able to win together. That's the ultimate criterion because war and violence are the ultimate forms of coercion, right? I mean, I don't need to tell this to you, you two gentlemen, but I mean, if you really want to persuade somebody, as Mao himself said, power comes from the barrel of a gun. If they know that if they escalate to the max level that it's not going to work well for them, they will be checked. They won't necessarily be contained or they won't do what we want, but they will have to respect at least a decent number of a sort of degree of our interests. This is going to be the statecraft. I think that's going to be really where the puts and takes and the creativity and the intelligence are going to need to be going forward. And again, I don't, I don't promise to have the answers uh, of what that looks like, but I think, um, the question about over-reassuring is, is very on point. I think we have gotten into a mode where we over-reassure our allies. And we, I think, Tom, you talked about like, we, we kind of talk about our allies in this sort of romantic sense almost. But we really need to think about that they have a purpose for us, which is to, to, to deny China hegemony or any state like Russia hegemony over one of the key regions. That's also their interests. You know, it's not falling in love. It's more like a business partnership, but that's a sounder basis for an agreement. I mean, I, one of the things I sometimes maybe rudely kind of say in these international discussions I'm part of is people talk about shared values. And look, I love our country immensely, but I mean, you know, for instance, I grew up in Japan. Japan has shared values in some ways and not in others. You know, has kind of different political culture, obviously different culture in a lot of ways. They're our most important ally in the world because nobody is stronger and more acutely threatened by China. Okay. like. That's a rationale. We know they need to spend more. We're in it together, whether we like it or not. Um, so I think that's how we th should think about it. And then we should mix assurance and pressure. Our allies should know that if they don't step up, A, we'll be angry, sure, but that's not enough. B, there is always a possibility that we just won't be able to do it. I mean, I was very encouraged by Taiwan's announcement the other day that they're going to spend a lot more on defense. I mean, they are in real risk of being abandoned. I mean, I'm defending, defending Taiwan, but there are a lot of people I really respect who quietly or not are saying it's not worth it. And it's not a dumb argument. To me, it's like a 
So Taiwan's fate in a lot of ways is in its own hands. And so I think that what they did the other day is really important and they should continue in that direction. The other thing is, I mean, we can defend countries in different ways. I mean, you know, during the Cold War, we were going to defend West Germany. Yeah, because we liked West Germany, but also because West Germany was the strongest economy in Europe. We weren't going to let the Soviets take it over. And our plans depended on what the West Germans did. If the West Germans sat around and did nothing, we were going to drop a lot of tactical nuclear weapons on West Germany. We told them that. And they didn't want that. They wanted a forward defense at the border with using, you know, not use, dropping tactical nuclear weapons all over the federal public. And not coincidentally, they developed a very robust Bundeswehr. In fact, the Germans, to, your, to our earlier conversation, they had 12 active divisions when they were a country two-thirds their current size. They can do better. It's their duty to do better. And they should do better. And we should pressure them to do better. So again, one of the things I'm disturbed right now is our relations probably are too good with Germany. There should be a lot of tension in our relationship because we care about Europe. So this is the kind of way that it's not, uh, we need to not vacillate between overly tough and kind of um, personalizing things on the one hand, but then reassuring and saying that everything's going to be hunky-dory. I mean, I think in a sense, the Biden administration is tripped up by its own approach on this, I think the Australia deal is a triumph and they deserve applause for it. But then the French are livid, but, but the French should be, I mean, I probably should have done better diplomacy, obviously, but also like, how surprising is this? Obviously the Asia is the priority and this kind of thing is going to happen. This is just the beginning, but, but, but we're only going to get all together in ways that are going to be suited for our different alliance and partnership relationships if we're candid and realistic. And, and just to put a kind of close, I mean, that's what I'm trying to do with this book is provide a framework for doing so. How exactly our relationship with France or Germany or Vietnam should evolve, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I have some thoughts, but I don't, I, 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 they're very fallible. But I hopefully have provided a framework that will allow people to have a more focused discussion uh, about, about how to do that. Well, this has been wonderful. And unfortunately, we are out of time. Uh, I will say we have only scratched the surface of what's in, what's in Bridge Kobe's book. And so please do not listen to this podcast or YouTube video and say, I've got the book because you do not. You just have a, the thinnest layer of it. And I want to thank the audience for joining us here today. Uh, if you work on the Hill or another think tank or just have questions, please contact us uh, using the information on the screen there. And you're going to get a survey at the uh, end of this. And uh, I hope you fill that out. But in the meanwhile, Bridge Colby, thank you so Thanks much. So much this was wonderful. Thank yeah, you. And, thank and audience members, thank you so much thank for joining you. us. And we look forward to seeing you again at another Heritage event. Goodbye.